0: This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer Hi, everybody, welcome to episode number 54, recorded on September 18th, 2015. I'm your host, Tim Kreit, from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University, and I'm here with my co host, Dr. Neale Shaw. Welcome, Neale. Happy to be here. And today on Twipple, we're going to discuss a really cool new type of therapy for childhood brain tumors with Dr. Kim Kramer. Welcome Kim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Dr. Kramer comes to us from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York where she's an associate member there and a a longtime New York native and and we found out today a big time Mets fan. So Kim, why don't you just give us a little bit of your background. You grew up in the Bronx and um, what got you interested in science and medicine?
1: So I was very excited to have a BSMD combined Bachelor's of Science Medical School background at the City University of New York, which is up in Upper Manhattan. And uh, after that, continued medical school at the State University of New York in Syracuse, and then on to uh, residency at the University of Rochester uh, before moving on to Sloan Kettering, where I had been ever since fellowship. So, uh, a few,
0: a couple of years. Yes. So. Um, was there something that uh, you saw in your college days or your medical days that attracted you or a particular mentor or a patient that, you know, really helped guide your career in this direction?
1: Well, I am very uh, consider myself very blessed to know so many inspirational patients and their families. And I think all of us in pediatric oncology universally express awe. Um, at the determination and the strength and the resiliency of our very young patients and their incredibly dedicated parents. So it's always an honor to be part of that team for such a special group of people.
0: Yeah, I'll second that notion. Um, what about uh, getting into experimental therapies? Because what you're doing is really cutting edge. How did you sort of migrate into that area?
1: so there seemed to be a need to try to improve the therapy for children that had fatal types of relapses in the brain as well as very difficult to improve primary tumors in the brain and since some of the success for improving the overall survival for pediatric cancers was based on intravenous monoclonal antibody use we started to apply that to the treatment of uh, brain tumors, giving that same type of targeted therapy that's used intravenously, only in this case giving it directly into the brain tumor or into the fluid that surrounds the brain. So do antibodies not cross the blood-brain barrier? That's part of the problem, is that the antibodies uh, given intravenously don't cross over into the brain. Some of the chemotherapy drugs that are very... Uh, commonly used systemically do not cross over into the blood-brain barrier as well. And, of course, there are limits as to how much radiation the brain could receive. So those things really posed uh, a barrier to uh, curing kids that have these type of recurrences.
0: So as most of our audience knows, I presume the antibodies need a target, a specific antigen that they're directed against. So how would you go about choosing what that was going to be and and figure out what tumors are appropriate targets.
1: So the first antibody that we used, 3F8, targets something called a GD2, and uh, years of research um, have have shown that certain tumors like neuroblastoma, retinoblastoma, or medulloblastoma express uh, GD2 on the surface of those tumor cells. And that was the basis for using this directed therapy intravenously and knowing that, we were able to apply this antibody uh, for use into the fluid around the brain and the spinal cord. More recently, there's been another antibody called 8H9. The nice thing about the 8H9 uh, is that the expression uh, targeting the tumor antigen B7H3, um, the B7H3 appears to be expressed on an increasingly um, more common number of tumors, not just neuroblastoma or medulloblastoma, but on many other tumors as well. So once the 3FA treatment was established, we started to initiate the 8H9 therapy for additional types of challenging tumors.
0: One more question before I send it over to you, <laughs> you anyway. Uh, so, you know, a lot of antibodies uh, are, done, are used by themselves. So rituximab, you know, um, and the anti-GD2 and neuroblastoma, what uh, evidence did you guys have or made you conjugate it to radioisotopes uh, and, and, and what were the risks of doing so versus the benefits?
1: Right, so when we get the antibody intravenously, many times we're relying on the patient's immune system, uh, certain types of cells that are circulating to recognize the antibody on the tumor cell and destroy that antibody antigen complex. Those kinds of effector cells are really not present on the other side, um, mainly in the brain or the spinal fluid. So in this case, when we take the antibody and attach it to a form of radiation, something called an isotope, we're able to deliver the antibody directly to the tumor cell and deliver a therapeutic dose of radiation specific for that tumor cell.
2: You know, a lot of us are are familiar with uh, antibody therapy for neuroblastoma when you're using the um, mean stimulatory components and the toxicity that's associated with that the pain and the inflammation so when you're talking about doing the radio uh, antibody treatments um, to the CNS what's the difference in uh, the toxicity um, what, what are kind of how is it similar to what we do for neuroblastoma, how is it different
1: well it's a great question and one that we didn't know before we started it now most People believe that the side effect of the intravenous uh, anti-GD2 antibodies is related to cross cross, uh, reactivity with peripheral nerve fibers. And that's why the anti-GD2 antibodies cause uh, pain um, and allergic reaction after infusion. It doesn't seem to be that those pain fibers are actually in the central nervous system and pain really is not one of the side effects of treatment. However, giving any antibody or any treatment into the spinal fluid um, can cause an acute headache or nausea or vomiting, but from what we've seen, these are transient side effects, the drug clears, we can give supportive care through it, and we regularly give these treatments um, in the outpatient setting.
2: And then when you're talking about radio labeling, you know, a lot of these brains from patients have already received a lot of external beam radiation. How does the dose compare uh, as far as how much you're giving cumulatively with the the antibody?
1: Right. So the way the radiation delivered by the targeted radioimmune therapy works seems to be very different from the way radiation from conventional external beam radiation works. And the I131 is an isotope that uh, emits a certain form of radiation that travels within one to two millimeters within a tumor. It is not completely penetrating the entire brain. Conventional XRT is mapping out a treatment that is definitely going to penetrate higher than that. And from what we've seen, both the radiolabeled antibody and conventional external beam radiation can be safely given together without increasing the risk of a radiation type of injury.
0: Well, you listed in your talk today to us a lot of different tumor types that are uh, patients that are eligible for your study. So, clearly, a lot of tumor types express GD2, but also this uh, B7H. Correct. Um, Is is, uh, this kind of radio labeled antibody going to be useful for those diseases systemically in addition to? those patients that have
1: CNS metastases? So uh, we have not used the 8H9 antibody systemically because from the preclinical studies, uh, it seems to be trapped in the reticular endothelial system and does not circulate the way intravenous anti-GD2 antibodies do. So, so far we have been limited to giving the 8H9 antibody into the spinal fluid or directly into the brain tumor but not systemically you
0: know why that is is there something on the common region
1: just you can see where it goes after you give it intravenously Mm. Um, there is another rare type of pediatric tumor called desmoplastic small round cell tumor Um, and those are tumors that are usually in young adolescents and uh, stay confined into the abdominal cavity with tumors that stud the abdominal cavity uh, Dr. Shaquille Modak on our team has been uh, using the radio-labeled 8H9 antibody delivered into the peritoneal cath- uh, cavity by a peritoneal catheter. Uh, so in that instance, we're still talking about a form of compartmental therapy that may be helpful for patients that have that uh, rare type of a sarcoma.
0: That, that, that's certainly a, a disease that needs... Some help with yes. the new therapy. so that sounds exciting. Is that something he's doing after a surgical resection of all? Exactly. So it's
1: upfront patients yeah. that are treated with chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and then hopefully using the antibody as consolidation at that point.
2: Because our our listenership is is broad, can you talk a little bit through like what the the mechanics are of? Uh, patient receiving it, you know, with regards to having a reservoir, how many injections they can get, how long you can be treating these do they patients they have to stay in the hospital or in the hospital, things like that?
1: So, our typical patient that's getting the antibody into the spinal fluid has an intraventricular catheter, something called an OMIA catheter, that our neurosurgeon places. Once that's placed, we do a flow study to make sure that the catheter works and that the that the antibody will be distributed appropriately throughout the whole brain and spinal cord. After that. Patients are usually treated in the outpatient setting from two to five injections um, over a number of weeks. And uh, we watch the patients carefully for the day of the injection. If all goes well, they go home that night. Um, and then we repeat the cycle, following carefully uh, how they're doing and how things look on a follow-up MRI.
0: So when we treat patients with uh, I-131 MIBG for neuroblastoma, we have to keep in the hospital three to five days till they have secreted it out of their system Do do patients that get this intraventricular antibody not have enough uh, radiation exposure that they don't present a risk to the Right, so our
1: radiation safety officers carefully monitor that important question, and MIBG intravenous injections are typically uh, five-fold, six-fold higher than what we're delivering um, through the OMIA catheters. So um, we don't regularly isolate any patients, um, but of course, our radiation safety team is always monitoring and measuring the activity level that every patient missed before saying, okay, free to go home, everything's clear.
2: So here's a um, perhaps more uh, grandiose thought. So you're able to give radiation in a very focal fashion. You try to debulk the patient similarly to to standard care. Can you foresee a time where we say let's try to get away from external beam radiation. Let's try to do all of our delivery in this way.
1: Well, I'm not sure we'll ever get to that point because the radiation through external beam versus through the antibody are very, very different. We have tried to decrease the dose of conventional XRT knowing that for sure the spinal fluid is getting additional radiation from the antibody dose. That seems to be uh, feasible. Mm -hmm without jeopardizing the risk of, uh, of long-term survival and cure um, but we haven't gotten to the point where for a standard tumor like medulloblastoma where the standard of care is external beam radiation we said okay we're, we're not going to do um, any external beam radiation now having said that for little children who are one two or three years of age where we don't even consider any form of external beam radiation because of those known side effects. Um, We have uh, successfully treated a few patients with some of the uh, great uh, chemotherapy regimens that have been pioneered from Dr. Finley and his team here. And after high-dose chemotherapy, if we can get into remission and we can consolidate patients at that time with the antibody therapy, well, that's a very realistic approach and seems to be feasible as well. And the
0: radiation to the vertebral spine is not uh, too much that it uh,
1: doesn't require stem cell rescue? No, we have not uh, needed uh, to give stem cell rescue after the antibody per se. There are patients that start treatment with a poor bone marrow reserve because they have had extensive systemic chemotherapy or recent cranial spinal radiation. And if the blood counts are low, sometimes we have to wait a while until they are more robust before going ahead with the antibody treatment, and, and many times, specifically with the 8H9, the dose can definitely lower the blood counts, and, and supportive care with transfusions are needed, um, but we try at all costs not to uh, damage the bone marrow to the point where the bone marrow can't recover or that stem cells are needed. Most of the time,
0: uh, when we have fellows either interviewing or we have our early stage fellows, and we're talking about career options, if they're not the uh, lab type that want to do you know eighty percent of their time in the research laboratory, uh they're typically at least at a big academic center like this they want to do some sort of translational research and rather than just a pure clinical clinical career. so it seems like the bulk of patients or, sorry the bulk of fellows uh, want to do what you're doing. Um, what advice do you have for them to help them develop a career like this? well
1: uh everybody has their they're unique gifts, and for trials that are trying to advance the overall survival and cure, certainly we need all of the basic science research available to support moving forward. And certainly on the clinical side, we need people that are dedicated to um, making sure that patients are appropriately monitored and, uh, and that uh, the rigors of uh, clinical trials are successfully followed. And then uh, in the middle somewhere are the opportunities to bridge some of those exciting researches made at the bedside with, uh, with our clinical team. And this kind of translational research is uh, incredibly rewarding if we could see it through to the point where it could actually make a difference in the lives of our patients.
2: Um, you mentioned the, the integration of, of clinical science with, with basic science, so what other um, studies Ernie is doing with uh, uh, as far as markers on the disease that are responsive or more responsive to conjugated therapy versus patients who, who seem to have recurrence after?
1: So uh, there is definitely a lot more known about some of the, the uh, genetic or mutational changes in some of these rare pediatric tumors. And we know a lot more now than uh, even five or 10 years ago. And there are definitely agents that can specifically target These tumors, so that's a new, exciting advance. Is to not treat every patient the same exact way with the same dose, but to see that it makes sense for uh, this particular patient to uh, to use these other kinds of form targeted therapy. So the the future seems bright in that regard.
0: One of the diseases we've talked about on this podcast before is um, uh, one of the most vexing problems in pediatric oncology, and that's dipg, diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. Uh, I know you're doing a study with that that you talked about. Can you summarize some of the that work?
1: Right, so these tumors are located in the brainstem, and that usually makes them impossible to surgically correct. And in the absence of surgery, regular conventional radiation therapy is the only treatment that seems to help, although that is, uh, is a transient um, type of an improvement. So uh, we're trying to use the radiolabeled antibody delivered by our uh, neurosurgical team directly into the brainstem where these tumors are to deliver a high focus of concentrated antibody um, in the operating room for patients with these type of tumors. And so knowing that radiation and radiation-based therapies are the thing that can really help arrest the growth of these tumors, we're hopeful that this new form of drug delivery directly into the brain stem could help these kinds of children. this is with the 8H9? This is with 124 labeled uh, I-124 labeled 8H9, correct.
0: So what percentage, since a lot of the IPG patients don't get biopsies, do you know what percentage they express
1: right. So uh, we had the fortunate um, experience to look at tumor tissue that had been obtained at rare biopsies or uh, from uh, families who generously donated autopsy specimens to the lab to look at the expression of 8H9 on these tumors. And for most of, of these um, these gliomas, the 8H9 expression is very heavily expressed. So it made sense to use the antibody that we were familiar with. We knew the um, safety profile by the intraventricular route. We knew that the expression of the target is there on the brainstem tumors. and uh, And with a dedicated neurosurgical team that could deliver the antibody by this new method of convection enhanced delivery, we could possibly uh, target the tumor better.
2: And then you uh, you talked about um, uh, with us previously that The when you're delivering this, the it's hard to target it just to the tumor because the brainstem is, is right there, but the patient seems to tolerate it well. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Well, we know that the B7H3 is not expressed on normal brain tissue, mm-hmm. so... That is one of the reasons why giving it, um, by the uh, intraventricular out there, are really little to no side effects. And so when we deliver the antibody into the brainstem, it looks like the drug is really targeting tumor tissue and not cross-reacting with normal brain tissue.
0: Great, well, it's uh, terrific having you here and we appreciate you spending some time with us and then uh, recording this for us. So. For any listeners out there, we're happy to read your emails during a future podcast and discuss your comments and questions. If you want to send us a note at TWIPO, it's T-W-I-P-O at solvingkidscancer.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at TWIPO Podcast or sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes by registering using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. They recently revamped their website. It looks pretty slick. Uh, But you can download all of our episodes there or on iTunes. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donald Lewinsky, our executive producer, and Cindy Campbell, director of communications, and also thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, who are founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to this week in Pediatric Oncology.